as you just saw, this is Austin's last week playing Dumbs and Trumps with us. We encourage you guys to pray for him and Kelly as they move into their next adventure in Colorado Springs, which I would like to say welcome to all of you who are joining us today in Colorado or Texas or New Mexico or Ohio or Alaska or Mexico or Tennessee or I think the Stanleys are maybe halfway there, I don't know, but somewhere around that. Uh, Santa Maria, Napoma, Royal Grande, Orkut, Vandenberg Air Force Base, Lompoc, all of those places, welcome to you. If you are joining us uh, online, what you can do is uh, download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and Then Events in Uversion, and then type in the zip code 93455. We will then come up in there, and you will get sermon notes and verses and questions and all that goes with the message. If you are local to us and you open up that app, it will automatically come up in your smartphone. You'll get all those things as well. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element, and this is the reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 22, verse 30. It says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. To me, that's a little funny because it sounds like they're putting Paul in front of these people like Paul in natural habitat. But let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for being a God who is gracious and good to us. And that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, whether it is COVID-related or like Paul in front of a bunch of people who just want to accuse him of different things, I thank you that you are there and you are with us and you guide us and that you are good. And so I ask that you would teach us today what it means to speak of the hope that we have, the gospel, the resurrection, the hope that you are in and through us, that we would live out for your glory in our lives. Amen. Amen. So this is week 29 of our trek through the second part of the book of Acts, mainly following the Apostle Paul. And like I mentioned last week, what you will mostly get over the next few weeks now is kind of the story. We're going to jump through verses pretty quick, following where Paul goes from place to place to place. And it's going to focus mostly on him, well, always on him, in jail throughout the end of the book. Now, Paul is in prison, and this essentially starts last week. How this works out is there is a riot in the temple that breaks out because Paul is there, and there are some people who don't think he should be allowed to be there. They spread a whole bunch of rumors about him and who he is, and they get a crowd to come and beat him up. While he is getting beat up, the Roman garrison sees what is going on, and the tribune, the commander of soldiers, sends soldiers out to protect this person, whoever it is, being beat up. They wrap him in chains and start to take him into the barracks. As they're taking him into the barracks, Paul stops the commander, this tribune, and says, May I speak to the crowd? And the tribune is probably like, What have I got to lose at this point? Sure, go ahead. So Paul speaks to the crowd, and he tells of a compelling vision of who he is, how devout he was, and how God showed up to him in the person of Jesus. And he does this all in the Hebrew language. Now, none of the crowd had any problem with anything that Paul said through all of this until the very end, when Paul says that God had sent him to also spread this message to the Gentiles. 
And when the crowd in the temple heard the word, the Gentiles, that Paul's going to take this message of grace and hope and redemption to them, that was it. They went nuts because in their mind, those people don't deserve the grace of God. They don't deserve to hear the things that Paul is speaking. And if they ever wanted to be part of the people of God, well, they needed to become Jewish and follow all of the law, not trust this dumb little thing called grace. The commander of the garrison, this tribune, can't get to the bottom of what's going on. All he sees is, i got to protect somebody from being killed in the temple. If you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 22. Uh, The commander of this garrison doesn't speak Hebrew, which is how Paul addresses the crowd. He only sees Paul say some words, and then the crowd goes nuts. Acts 22 verse 22 says, Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, I don't know if you have ever been in another country, maybe some place where you don't speak the language, you don't really know what's going on, but everything seems to be cool for a little bit. Then all of a sudden, all hell just seems to break loose for no reason whatsoever. A few years ago, my wife and I, we were in Rome with some other friends, and we wanted to go to this place called Florence. So we're in the train station trying to get tickets. We don't speak a lick of Italian. They don't speak a lick of English. We can't communicate with anybody. But eventually someone points to this angry man behind this kiosk who we try and ask for tickets. He points us to an angry woman in another kiosk. And we finally are able to buy some tickets to go to Florence. And we get them in our hands and the train starts to take off. And we're like, what is going on? We start running for this thing and everybody thought it was funny except for us. This is kind of the tribune in this place. Because when Paul starts to speak to the crowd in Hebrew, they get very quiet. They they start to listen. And he's probably like, oh, good decision on my part. Cheerio, keep going. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they try to kill Paul again. And he's most likely at a loss for what happened because he doesn't speak Hebrew. I kind of feel only a little bit bad for the guy. So Acts 22, verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, you know, like you do when you show that you're mad, the tribune ordered him, that's Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So the tribune can't figure out what's going on, and so he says, you know, the best way to get to the end of the he said, he said, he said is, of course, Torture. We'll torture Paul until we figure out what's really going on. And there is a casual way in the Roman Empire and throughout a lot of history that torture is just thrown about. It's this idea that if someone is not screaming in pain, then they obviously must not be telling the truth. I mean, it's shocking to us, but part of daily life back then. I mean, can you imagine torturing anyone and not until they scream would you believe a word that they were saying? Think of the numbers of innocent people throughout the course of history who have been put through terrible suffering for no good reason except someone can't figure out a better way to get the truth out of somebody. It's like, oh, is this cage-free chicken? I don't know. Stab him until he's sure. It's an, it was not my favorite time to want to ever be alive. Well, No showers and flushing toilets as well, but you know that. So Paul is now going to pull out his trump card. Verse 25, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Uncondemned is really important there because there are times and places where Roman citizens could be flogged if they were condemned, but he was not. 
So it's a rhetorical question. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? Or more likely, what are you going to make me do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. I mean, so Paul is like, this is barbaric, you can't do this, but not until he says, I'm a Roman citizen, do they stop. Now, the reason it's barbaric is that there are three main things that Romans would do in the midst of these examinings, these interrogations. And none of these things they used sat around gathering dust at all. Uh, When soldiers were bored, what they would do is go grab somebody who had no rights and essentially torture them for fun until their boredom was alleviated. So the three things they used were this. Uh, The rack. uh, There's a picture that you'll see right now. There's a rack. This is what they put Paul on. Some of them are flat, but some of them were these wheels, and they would pull and twist your joints until they popped or broke. Uh, The second thing were something called the thongs. And the thongs were not some weird piece of underwear they put on you to humiliate you. They're what you you tied you down with. They weren't ropes. They were leather that would grab onto your skin. And when you pulled against them, it would pull your skin off. And the last thing is the whips. These are cat of nine tails designed to grab onto the flesh when they hit you with them. And when they pulled them back out, it was designed to pull muscle off of bone with each stroke. So here's a question that gets posed about this whole situation. How do you prove you're a Roman citizen? Why doesn't any person who's accused of anything just say, wait, you can't do this, I'm a Roman citizen? Like today, if you want to go buy alcohol, you got a driver's license. They always card you. If you got no hair on your head, but it's grown out your ears and out your nose, they're sti- they still card you. How at this time do you prove you're a Roman citizen? Well, first, there's punishments. If you claim to be one and you weren't one, they would torture you longer and then eventually kill you. So there's the scare factor. But on the other side, there is an official badge. It's a a double-faced tablet, usually made in bronze, and it's a way to show that you're a Roman citizen when you're out of your hometown. It is called a diploma, and here is a picture of what one looked like. So whenever you're away, you have this. You can pull out and say, look, I am a Roman citizen no matter where you are. Now, it's doubtful that Paul had this on him because Paul has just gotten beaten by a mob. But the soldier believes him probably because of Paul's dialect and how he spoke. So the tribune comes to ask questions because, you know, he wants to find out how are you a Roman citizen? And the other way you do that is by asking questions. Where are you from? What's your lineage? How are you one? The the tribune is doubtful about Paul because he is a first-generation Roman citizen, and he had to purchase that. And so he asked Paul, and Paul says, I'm a citizen by birth, meaning Paul's father or grandfather must have done something in service to Rome in that city of Tarsus. And going back about 100 years before Paul, there are all these historical uh, different documents that show that certain Jews became citizens of Rome by certain things they did for the Roman Empire. So Paul tells this guy his pedigree, where he is born, how he was a Jew. And Paul is a bit irritable because he uses that word and uncondemned. That means without being found guilty, which is also against Roman law. No trial, no condemnation. They should not have been doing anything to a Roman citizen. And so at this point, what you see Paul do is use his privilege. That's what he does. But what Luke is trying to help us to see, that when the Romans or really anybody would take a moment and just listen to Paul 
over and over again he would be vindicated with charges that were against him. When this is for us today, any time we take the time to listen to somebody else and talk to them and hear their side, many times we get a much deeper understanding. And this is why people who only want to have arguments on social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or whatever, those things never go well because we cannot hear other people. We must be willing to sit down and listen to what they're actually saying. Uh, Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. This is the Jewish ruling council. This is the Sanhedrin. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the tribune cannot figure out what is actually going on. Why is Paul being beaten up? Why is Paul arrested under Roman custody? So he brings everyone together to figure this out. Chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, Luke is trying to tie the book of Acts together here. When it says looking intently, that's the exact same words for when Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples watched him go. Here, Paul is looking intently at this council of people who are there because Paul most likely knew most of them. And the customary address to the Sanhedrin, if you were just somebody going before them, would be rulers of Israel and elders of the people. As a matter of fact, when Peter is arrested and stands before this group in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, he says, rulers and elders of the people. That's how he addresses them. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul puts himself on their level because he was one of them. I mean, not part of the Sanhedrin, but they were his social circle from before his conversion. Uh, He maybe even probably studied with most of the people there under his rabbi, Gamaliel. And so it's why he addresses them as my brothers. It shows that Paul is like, finally, some people who know me. Maybe this will get a little bit better now. I am so happy it's you. It's like uh, if you did something dumb and you ended up with a jury trial and you walk out and see the jury and they're all people you went to high school with and they actually liked you. You're not the ones, but the ones that did like you. You'd be like, oh, thank goodness. You guys know who I am. Paul's like, oh, my brothers, I've lived my life with a good conscience to this day. That's what he tells them. This thing that where it says to conduct myself uh, with a good conscience means to conduct yourself as a citizen. That you have gone through, you followed the, the civil laws, you followed the moral laws, I followed the laws of Israel. You all know this. I'm so glad it's you. How does he get rewarded by that? Verse 2 of chapter 23. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. It's like, oh, thank goodness, it's you. Boom. He gets punched in the face. Now, that order is illegal. You're not allowed to strike somebody like that. Paul knows that, as he knows the law better than probably most of the people who are there, because he is constantly having to explain it. Ananias became the high priest in 47 AD. Being the Jewish high priest at this point was more of a political appointment than a religious appointment. Uh, Rome would actually appoint who the high priest got to be. The historian Josephus tells us that Ananias was a despicable person. He says, he seized for his own use ties that should have gone to the ordinary priests and gave large bribes to Romans and Jews. He was wealthy, he resorted to violence and even assassination to accomplish his ends, which just tells you that bad religious leaders are nothing new, they've been around forever. Eventually, when the Jewish revolt happens in AD 66, they will assassinate Ananias, but that is nine years after this event. 
Now, he most likely has Paul struck because of how Paul addressed the people there as brothers. The word there for struck, it actually uh, translates as, as thumped, something that they would do at that time to unruly children, like stop it, you're being out of control. So Paul addresses them as brothers, and this guy doesn't like it. So he has someone thump Paul like a child to shut him up. Paul had been badly beaten the day before. He's probably got bruises all over his face, so it hurts. Like sometimes if we go to the lake and we go wakeboarding, we come home the next day and I'm really, really sore, and my wife likes to just do this on my legs. Oh, oh, does this hurt? Oh, does this hurt? And it hurts, and it's very annoying, so I I get it. She thinks it's funny, but it's not. So Paul's a little irritated. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I swear, if I was in the room, I'd be like, ooh, ooh, popcorn, here comes the show. This is going to be good. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, Paul here, he isn't perfect. Paul gets angry, probably because of his pain, and he lashes out in anger. I have a little bit of a problem because I'm like, good for you, Paul. You tell him off. (laughs) When he says, you know, whitewashed tombs, the Jews would paint their tombs white so you would know that there was a dead person inside, and if you touched that tomb, you'd become unclean. So you would say, oh, it's a whitewashed tomb. I shouldn't go near that. So Paul is saying that Ananias, though he might look okay on the outside, is full of decaying filth on the inside. It's like, oh, burn. Jesus actually used that one too. And I doubt that Paul knows that he is talking to the high priest. He probably doesn't even consider the possibility that a high priest would have him thumped like that. It has been 20 years since Paul got his orders from the last high priest to go kill Christians. He doesn't know all the machinations in the Sanhedrin of who's who and and where they're at. But Paul just insulted the highest official in the Jewish system. And what you will see Paul now do after this is he'll apologize. Not for the truth of what he said, but how he said it. Paul respects the office, though not clearly the present holder of it, which is also something good for us to understand as well. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here's the thing. When Paul realizes his mistake, not that the high priest wasn't wrong for having him smack, but that he was angry in his outburst, and that got the better of him, that he apologizes for right away. Now, it's not going to do anything to smooth the situation out, because many times people think way too highly of themselves and their moral superiority, seldom accept apologies or want reconciliation. They just want to be angry. They just want to be offended. And I can personally tell you story after story of people who I have inadvertently offended in one way or another, and I found out about it, and I try to go talk to them, because that's kind of my personality. It's like, oh, they're mad. I need to go talk to them and figure this out. And when I talk to them, a lot of times they will say, oh, no, no, nothing's wrong. Everything's okay. And then they will tell everybody else how they're mad at me, and eventually they leave element, and they think I'm beneath them, and they won't talk to me anymore. And as kindly as I can say this, we must be better. We can't be Ananias. We must be willing to enter into conversation, especially if someone hurts us or offends us. And if we know we've done that to somebody else, we should seek them out. And so we can't bring reconciliation in that. Today, with our racial tensions and our COVID tensions and our political tensions, we must be better. I titled today's message and the running with the high priest, When Personal Holiness Overshadows Godliness. When our own personal piety, when we think we are so great, overshadows the call that God places in our lives, that's wrong, and we are in sin. 
Paul is a guy who talks about what the law said. You aren't allowed to smack me, but he still humbles himself enough to apologize. Whereas the person who was supposed to be the most godly in the room is the one person who stays vindictive the entire time. By striking Paul, it's a way of saying you're blaspheming or you have no right to speak in your own defense. You're telling lies. And Paul, though, had not said anything that was remotely a lie. But there is all this anger, all this animosity that is already built up. And there's nothing Paul can really do about it. Normally what Paul would do is say, thank goodness, brothers, it's you. Here's my story. This is, this is what has happened in my life. Hear what is going on. And instead now what Paul will do is size up the room. And he sees that there are Pharisees and Sadducees in this room. And he's going to get to his end point before going through his entire story. And his end point is essentially going to be resurrection. And he is going to use everyone's personal holiness against them. You won't see it, but it is kind of funny. And I'll explain it to you. Verse Six. So, when Paul realized he isn't getting out of this, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Paul is not just trying to be a total stinker right here in the midst of all of this. What he's doing is thinking, I'm not going to be able to share my story, so I'm going to get to the point right now, knowing that is also going to probably get me out of this. Uh, this, is, this would be like someone if walked into a room and said, hey, let's talk about government overreach, or uh, let's talk about white privilege. There's going to be people on all sorts and sides of the issue, and it's going to kind of break out into something. Verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contented sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit and an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension had become violent, because now Paul got the religious readers to fight each other, and he's in the middle, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, because religious people are never crazy, uh, commanded the soldiers to go down and Take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul goes back into the barracks. Now let me try to explain this. Uh, the belief that God is bringing justice for all people to the entire world for a Pharisee is grounded ultimately in the future hope that God is setting everything right. A redeemed creation, a restored humanity, everything becomes new and renewed. And this takes place in the resurrection of the dead and life with God. As Christians, we believe that. We just believe that starts to take place in Jesus himself. The Sadducees, on the other side, did not believe in resurrection or new creation or angels or demons or any kind of life with God after death. Most of them believed that when you died, you went to the grave and you lived in gloomy darkness forever. Yay! Who wants to be on that team? I don't know. N.T. Wright says this about Paul. He says, Paul decides to release his biggest cat into a room full of self-important pigeons. Resurrection. And this is the center of Paul's ministry and message, the resurrection of Jesus. The ruling council of the Sanhedrin is made up of priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and elders, but the majority of them were Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in what was called the oral law. That's what Jesus taught from. The Pharisees own, or the Sadducees only believed in the strictest form of the written law. Uh, no reconciliation, no grace. 
uh, the Pharisees believed in God's absolute sovereignty, God's providence, that God destined things to happen in the world, where the Sadducees believed that everything was about man's free will. Uh, They would even have arguments about predestination versus free will. Imagine that, right? So Paul goes in. And he's trying to argue his case. And he realized in the end, it's not doing any good. But Paul just can't walk away from this. He's under arrest. And so he's got the Roman tribunal and the Jewish court both grinding him. So what he does is he jumps to where he needs to go before he is shut out completely. And he talks about this idea of resurrection, Christ rising from the dead to all these religious people in the room. He says, this is the center of my case. Did Jesus, as the Messiah of Israel, rise from the dead? And again, Paul is not just being a jerk in this. That's the issue. That's the whole issue of everything that he speaks about. And if he has given enough time, he would actually get there. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Whenever Paul spoke, He tried to get to the place of the resurrection, that God is bringing new life. God is making everything new again. He preaches Jesus is alive, that Jesus had spoken with him twice, and this is what infuriated everybody. And so Paul says, it is with regard to the resurrection and God's restoration that I am on trial today, the resurrection of the dead. It'd be like walking into a church with a Make America Great Again hat or going to the South and waving around a Confederate flag. People are going to be polarized immediately. The Pharisees are obviously not going to go so far as to say, well, Jesus did rise from the grave yet, uh, but they will go halfway. They're prepared to allow that maybe a person that Paul met on the road to Damascus was an angel or a spirit of this person, Jesus, that was still alive and awaiting resurrection because they believe when resurrection came, everybody would be resurrected at the same time. And they're like, if that's what Paul's standing up for, well, okay, we could be on his team. David Curtis writes this, The Pharisees found themselves in a most interesting position. They found that they had more in common with Paul than they did with the Sadducees. They went in into this thinking, yeah, we got to get rid of Paul. And on the end of it, they're standing up for Paul. Paul is here, probably seeing all the good that the gospel has done in normal people's lives. And now here, it's being weighed down by inessential bickering about religion. Paul's whole testimony had been about resurrection. What Jesus had done as God fulfills his promises in the world. So Paul's probably thinking, if I'm going to be condemned and torn apart, let it be for something worthwhile. He probably also wants the tribune to see that all of this argument about why Paul is on trial is something the Jews all didn't even agree about. And again, as I keep saying, for Paul, what is an issue is what is always at issue for those of us who believe in Jesus. Our understanding of God's good news. Our understanding of the gospel. After Pentecost, the Sadducees will take the leading role in opposing the apostles in Christianity. The gospel the apostles preached, that Paul preached, is the same one that we preach today. It is centered around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Sadducees couldn't allow that to take place. One, because they didn't believe in it. But two, when you realize that the temple is no longer needed and that people are free to trust and love God in grace, it's going to erode their power. Many people today can't stand the idea of resurrection either. And they write book after book after book trying to discount it while they ignore all the empirical evidence that is there for it. 
And I might have told you this before, I don't know, but there is not one historical account of one Sadducee ever becoming a follower of Jesus. Although there were many, many accounts of Pharisees becoming followers of Jesus. History actually shows that as time went on, they became less aggressive in their stance and opposition to the apostles. Because every genuine Pharisee lived their life with one final aim in view, that they might attain eternal life and resurrection from the dead. And this is what God is bringing about in the person of Christ. But what is also interesting that you see here is Paul doesn't make this division based on something he is against. He shouts out what he is for, as we should be a people who cry out what we are for. He is for the hope of God bringing his promises to fruition in the person of Jesus. Yes, when he speaks about resurrection, that whole crowd goes nuts, nearly tears him apart with this vehement disagreement. And it's interesting that once again, the government, the Romans, are the ones that come in and save Paul. The next night, after all this happens, Paul's probably in a lot of turmoil, and this is what you read in Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The facts about me in Jerusalem are what? That's the gospel. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting today that a lot of Christians tend to only think about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, which is a good thing to think about. But we don't understand or think a lot about the resurrection. See, the cross is about the removal of our sins. All that stood between us and God and us and one another is removed by Christ's death. But what we also know and understand is that the resurrection is about the new life that is the result of God's work in our lives. The gospel, the good news, is death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul finds himself on trial because of good news because of God's salvation to the world, because of the Messiah's resurrection and all the realities that that introduced. I mean, Paul is a guy who is on the road to Damascus, and only because of the resurrection can Jesus actually show up to him there. Only because of the resurrection does Jesus show up to him in the temple twice. Only because of resurrection does Paul get this commission to take this good news out to the Gentiles in the world. Paul will see all of the hardships and everything he goes through as a way to continue to spread the gospel, which is important for us to understand as well, that everything that we go through, again, whether it be COVID-related or whatever, in the end is something that God can use to spread the gospel. It matters where our focus is. Our focus is meant to be on the person of Jesus Christ. Our focus is meant to be on what he has done and what he continues to do. Now, spoilers in this, Paul is going to make it all the way to Rome. And when he does, he will write this when he writes the book of Philippians in jail in Rome. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What does Paul's imprisonment ultimately do? It emboldens people to speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ, exactly what Paul is doing where he is. See, God has a job for Paul to do, as he has one for us to do. I mean, we are told that God has designed good works for his people to be involved in and do, that nothing can stop God's plans, nothing. This is the resurrected Jesus, the hope that we have that leads us to be able to have faith in the things that God calls us to do. That is what encourages us, that God is the one that rescued us. 
The reason we know this and can live in this is that Paul knew Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And this, again, is what too will enable us to speak about the gospel. It will enable us to actually live in the gospel day by day as a center of our lives. And I will tell you that the world we live in today desperately needs to hear this. And if we are a people who have one message to speak, let's make it not be a message that's centered around us and all the great ideas we think we have. Let it be a message that is centered around Christ's death, burial, resurrection, alive, drawing all people to himself, making all things new because he is good, because he is the resurrected one, because he is the one who rescues and saves us. Because God has a crazy love for his people that so undoes us when we understand it. And this is the reason that element every week we try to take you to a place to understand what communion actually means. That's why we take you there to that table where we invite you to take a, a piece of bread or a cracker and break that and, and dip it in wine or grape juice or drink wine and grape juice with it. That reminds us of his broken body and his blood that is shed for every single one of us. The gospel, the good news of our restoration, of our hope, that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we have hope because we're not alone. Because God has sought us and God has given us so much more grace than we could ever understand. And this is why we invite everyone to the table. We invite people to worship with us through music and song. Uh, you're in your home, so you don't have to hum. You get to sing along if you would like. It's, it's great for where you are. Uh, we are people who invite you, if you need prayer, to let us know. If you're on the live stream on the side of the, of the YouTube thing, you can, you can put, send an email to connect at our or just type a prayer request in there. I mean, maybe you're going through a really hard time and you don't know how to even speak of the gospel in the midst of where you are, how it relates to your particular situation. Well, we, would, we have people who would love to pray with you about that. You know, again, we are a people who, who give so much to God because God has given so much to us, so we always give you the opportunity to give. And then what we also do is we send you guys these, these sermon notes, these questions that go along with these messages so you can speak to one another about the great things that God is doing in and through us and to encourage one another to continue to live that out in our lives. To speak of when we have the moments and only maybe just a small amount of time to speak about the resurrected Savior who has come to rescue us and is making all things new. Let's be a people who speak of that, who speak of God's rescue of us because He is good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that You would take us and teach us what it means to understand what grace really means, what Your coming to rescue us truly means that we would be those who are so undone by your goodness and grace towards us that we couldn't do anything but speak of that to the world around us, to speak of the resurrected hope that we have. And whether we feel like we're living lives that are being uh, tortured like Paul as they lay him out on the rack or lives that just seem a little bit out of control because of all the things in our world we can't take care of right now, God, that we would trust that you are holy and that you are good and that you are bringing all things together, that you see the mess that we make of things and yet through the grace that is found in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the good news of the gospel, you are making all things new. That includes us. That includes the world around us and you use us every day 
to be your ambassadors to the world, to speak of your hope and your goodness and your life and your grace. So teach us to be those who honor and love you by how we speak of you and by how we understand what the gospel is. Have us live out as your people in this world. And we ask all these things in your son's good name. Amen. Amen.